like you to get your Bibles out if you brought one. If you didn't, you could certainly read off the screen. If you have a Bible at home and you just didn't bring it because you didn't want the extra weight, bring it next week. I'm sure you'll be able to use it. One of the greatest things about bringing your Bible to church is that you read it in your own and you see it for yourself and then you go home and you read it again. And you read, because we don't have a lot of time, uh, we don't have as much time as we wish we had. And so, you know, a lot of times it'll do you much good to go home and read what came before and what came behind what we read so that you can see it perfectly in context and you know we're not just pulling things out of a hat, that, that really this is what the Word says and let it sink in deeper in you and I believe it'll be a good thing. We've been reading through the book of Acts and it's been wonderful. I've enjoyed it. Um, we're, we're still in Acts chapter 2. And uh, a lot has happened in these two chapters. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus gave them the last instructions. They were wondering, because he had risen from the dead, they were wondering if this was the moment that he'd come up and set his kingdom and kick the Romans out and kick the, you know, everybody that, you know, everybody that was causing issues, everybody that was trying to rule over them, that he would come and overthrow these governments and set up his own. But Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has set. It's not for you to know these things, but Acts 1.8 says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And uh, we haven't even scratched the surface of, of these places that they're talking about. So far, they're still in Jerusalem and they've, they've, they've just, last week we left off with Peter preaching the very first sermon. Uh, not the first sermon they'd ever heard, but the first sermon in the early church, the first evangelistic message. He gets up in front of a city that, that has, has tried to kill them and has killed their, their Lord. Uh, they get in front of a city where they're wanted men and they stand there together and Peter stands and delivers one of the most upfront, brutally honest, and yet compassionate messages he could deliver. And he tells them that the promise that has been promised for generations has come. First of all, the promise of Jesus Jesus coming, becoming their sacrifice, dying for them, rising again. But he doesn't just say, Jesus died for you. He said, you killed him. And then he says, but don't worry, he, he rose from the dead, a fact that's been attested by all these witnesses. And he says this, here's the promise, that he's offering you forgiveness, that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's offering you the gift of his spirit. And this promise, he says, is for you and for your children too. And it's a wonderful thing. And uh, the Bible says that 3,000 people heard that message. Not, not 3,000 3, didn't hear. More than 3,000 heard. But 3,000 believed the message, were baptized and added to the number that day. So let's pick up in Acts chapter 2. And uh, we're going to look at some of the aftermath of this great message. You know, as we said last week, Peter was not educated. Um, we read and we can kind of uh, infer from, from the Gospels in the book of Acts that the accent that Peter had was not looked highly upon. He kind of had a hick accent. Um, they referred to it as the Galilean accent. But uh, hearing, hearing these guys from Galilee didn't score him any extra points. It was kind of like you're backward, you're country, you don't really, yeah, not even country, country wouldn't be the word, just backward. You just didn't have education because there's plenty of educated country folk, but the Galilean accent just didn't sound educated at all. And in fact, most of the time when they opened their mouth, they backed up the fact that they weren't educated. We're going to read later on in a few weeks, maybe a couple weeks, uh, when there's a man that's healed and Peter and John are preaching and it says the whole crowd recognizes that they were uneducated men. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I'd hope not every time I open my mouth, people immediately recognize I'm uneducated. I hope that doesn't happen often, <laughs> you know, where they just say, whoa, I can tell he didn't get education. They, they could tell there was power. They knew these men had been with Jesus. But just from hearing them talk, they knew they weren't educated. It's amazing that God picks this guy to preach the very first message to proclaim the gospel to Jerusalem. This is the beginning of the mission of the church to start in Jerusalem. And he picks the hick to do it. And, and you know what? When he begins to speak, the Lord fills him with the right words. He's full of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through him, proving what First Corinthians, sorry, yeah, First Corinthians 1 says, that uh, God chooses the weak. He chooses the foolish to confound the wise. The Apostle Paul said, I didn't come with eloquent words, but I came in the demonstration of the Spirit and with power. And that's exactly what they saw in Jerusalem that day. 3,000 people were saved. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you'll know the significance of that number. 3,000 were saved when the Spirit was given. It was on the exact anniversary of the day that the law was given and 3,000 people died because of their rebellion. But on that same day, hundreds and hundreds of years later, 3,000 people were saved. Because the Bible says, the law may kill, but the Spirit gives life. He demonstrated that though all these folks in Jerusalem had just, just a few weeks before, had said, let his blood be on our heads and on our children. You recall, this is what the crowd said. A crowd that was so hostile that a Roman governor cowed to their wishes. Let his blood be on our heads and on our children's heads. And Peter comes along and says, this promise is for you and for your children. We talked about it last week. Jesus' great revenge. If this was a Hollywood movie, Jesus would have sent his boys into Jerusalem to clean up, take names, cause some problems. Get revenge on Jerusalem. His revenge on Jerusalem was to offer them salvation. Amen. His revenge on Jerusalem was to forgive, to show them that there was forgiveness of sins, that there was, with their repentance, there was a way into the family of God, that Jesus was not going to hold this over them forever, that instead they could call upon the name of the Lord and they would be saved. And that promise of the Spirit was for them and for their children. That's a wonderful thing. Well, here's where it picks up in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 40. So Peter's just told them, here's how, you, here's how you're saved. Here's how you're rescued. Here's how you'll be delivered. Then he says this. With, the Bible says this, rather. It says, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. So if we hear the, the phrase, kept on exhorting them, it means he probably repeated himself a few times. This was something that was so important, he had to say it more than once. What did he exhort them to do? It says he exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be rescued from a perverted culture. Be saved from a world that's been messed up. Now, when we use the word perverted, we think of only one thing, generally. But the word perverted means to twist, to corrupt. In fact, that's what the word wicked means. If you think about it, wicked comes from the word for twisting. If you think about on a candle, there's a wick, right? Furniture, wicker furniture, it's something that's twisted. So wicked just means something that was good has been twisted. Because we know that Satan cannot create, he can only pervert. 
and everything good that God created, he has tried to pervert. Our culture has perverted. I mean, you think about it. God created uh, sexual intimacy between uh, married, a married couple, and, and what has the world turned it into? I mean, it's turned into a casual thing. I mean, if you watch a show, if you watch a TV series that's, that's you know, that'd be popular today, it would be way more common to have people sleep together before they ever say, I love you. In fact, that's the big step is to say, I love you. The big step is not, to, not to, for two to become one flesh. The, the big step is for them to say, I love you after they've slept slept together and maybe even lived together. Now that's, that's how far off God's original plan it's gotten. And you can see that in every area. I just picked one example, but there are many examples of good things that God created. See, God created Adam and Eve to have whatever they needed, right? I mean, why in the world did you think that God needed there to be diamonds and some mountains? Why do you think that God gave them gold and silver? Well, what's the purpose of that? It didn't help them survive, but God was a God that blessed his people. And yet the world's corrupted the things that God provided. The world's corrupted it and, and it has become greed and it's come, become covetousness and it's become all these things that were originally good and, and the world has corrupted and we've corrupted. Peter says to him, be saved, be rescued, be delivered from a twisted generation. And he says this, In verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, one day, they were added about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine the logistics of that? 120 people became 3,120 people in one day. I don't know how we'd handle that. That might be difficult, but, but what a glorious day it was. That day, we're added 3,000 souls. And it says, and everyone, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, let's stop there for a moment and just consider what it might mean to, to say they devoted themselves. Devoted is more than just a casual relationship with, Right? When you devote yourself to something, that's your priority. That's, that's something that you put precedence. That's something that, that, you, that you deem valuable. That's something that you're saying, this is going to take my energy. It's going to take my time. It might take my life. They were continually, not just once or twice, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place for the apostles. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now, 2,000 years later, we read this, and, and it's all halos and, and, and um, rainbows, and it's, it's a wonderful picture of, of everything just working out well. It's, it's a classic happily ever after story. But think about it. The awe that they felt... We like to think it might be a comfortable awe where everybody's just saying, isn't God good? 
But it says that many signs and wonders were taking place with the apostles. This church started with 120 people just, just starting speaking in an in, in langu unknown language in front of a bunch of people. This church started with people accusing them of being drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. This was not normal. And so maybe the feeling of awe that they're feeling is a little bit of just positively being freaked out, but in a good way, and we trust God. And so things are happening. We don't understand it, but God is doing something and I embrace it and I'm excited about it. And then it says, but it says that they were devoting themselves to these things. Everyone keeps feeling a sense of awe and many signs and wonders were taking place. But then it says all those who believed were together. Now think about the awkwardness of that situation. Like I said, you grew from a group of 120 huddled in an upper room somewhere. Now you've got 3,000 people that say, we want to come and we want to join you. And they're all together. What does together mean? Does it mean they're sleeping in the same house? Obviously not. Might not even mean that they're always meeting in the same place. They're trying. But I think that togetherness is more than just a sense of place. They're, they're in some sort of unity. There's a, there's a unity of the spirit. There's a unity of heart. They're together. And I want you to see the order of things. This comes directly after they're all filled with the Spirit. This comes at a time where one of the first things it says is that they're in a sense of awe. They're in a sense of awe. They're very aware of God moving in their midst. They're very aware of Jesus. They're very aware of his spirit affecting things around them. And so the response to that is that it doesn't drive them to privately consider this on their own. It drives them together. And together, they're taking their meals. Together, they're going and, and being taught. Together, they're praying. Together, they're fellowshipping. Now, that word fellowship in the original Greek um, can mean, you know, spending time together. But it can also mean, if we look in the original biblical Greek, it, it often has the connotation of saying, we're in this together. It's, it's like it's going to say later, sharing things in common. What's mine is yours. It's not just fellowship as in we had a potluck dinner. We all, you know, kind of shared our macaroni and cheese. There's, there's a sense of partnership, of commitment to one another. Now, what I don't see are the apostles giving a six-month class on how we all better give up our stuff and how we all better hang out more often, and how we all better deny ourselves. In fact, you don't see anybody doing it, but you see it happening. They are giving up their stuff. They are getting together. So it might not be a response because somebody told them to do it, although that may have happened, but more of a response to that awareness of God, that as they became more in awe of him, as they became more filled with him, the reaction, the natural reaction, was that the love they were getting from God was flowing with each other. And the more and more they're aware of God's presence, the less it seems right and proper to ever say, this is mine. And the more it doesn't matter who owns what, the more they're saying, we're in this together. Look what it says in the next verse. It gets really good. I mean, it gets scary if you read it right. The danger of reading this is that you might actually believe it. And... Um, it's a little, I mean, it's one of those things that kind of messes with your routine. But look what it says. It says, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, does that mean they're selling the house that they're living in? Most likely not. I mean, if they're, if they're living somewhere, they still got to live somewhere. It doesn't say they became homeless, but a lot of these guys had extra land, extra property. We find out in Hebrews that there was a period of time when that property started to be seized. So perhaps this is also God moving amongst them saying, hey, this property is not going to do you much good. Sell it, distribute it as anyone has need, but there's not one person in that church that has a need that's not met. That's amazing to me. Because we've discovered throughout history that the great communist experiment seems to always fail. Doesn't make everybody rich, it always tends to make everybody poor. The world can't pull this kind of thing off. I'm not saying this is directly communistic. I'm not using those words. What I am saying is that with these people, there was nobody forcing them to give anything up. Do you notice that? Now, you live in Russia 40 years ago. You didn't own anything because someone said you couldn't own anything. Not because you had charity of heart. You live in China under the Maoist revolution. You couldn't just say, I've decided to give my land away. Somebody took your land away. There are certain things that only work. Now, this is the thing that that we, when we live in a human, just a humanistic government and system, we say, if we're going to get people to do the right thing, we got to make laws that make them do the right thing. That's the only way this works. But in the church, what happened was they were filled with the spirit and it says they didn't even consider anything was their own. They, they, they just began to do these things. No, nobody came and told them they had to do it. They just did it. They were so full of God that this was the natural reaction. And what I said before is that every time the world's attempted something anywhere close to this, it fails. But somehow, with the leading of the Spirit and the empowerment of the Spirit, nobody had lack. Nobody did without Here's what it says. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is so exciting. Because this, as I said, is not, we, we've, we've said this so many times before, but we use the word early church, we use the phrase early church, as if it's a different church altogether, as if it's a different religion half the time. But the early church, there's never in the Bible a phrase early church, it's just the, the church, it's just called the church. The church we live in today is the same church that they had 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit that dwells in us is the same Holy Spirit that dwelled in them. The Jesus we know is the same Jesus they knew. It's easy to separate ourselves and say we're different, and we are part of a different culture and we're in a different time, but, but God is still God and the church is still the church. And the church is meant to be a representation of Jesus on the earth. In fact, the scripture says it is the fullness of him who fills everything. The church is meant to be his fullness. It's meant to fill every crack. It's meant to be his body on the earth. And so here's the response. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. They're aware of God. That's all they care about. Suddenly their priorities are so dramatically shifted that I'm sure they look like weirdos to everybody else. I mean, what would your family say if all of a sudden you started selling your stuff and giving it away? 
What would your family say if every day you started meeting with the same kooky people and listening to their kooky teachers and eating with new friends every day you're, you're, you got a new group of people, they would undoubtedly say you had joined a cult. And they get one of those investigative reporter teams to come and rescue you and kidnap you and deprogram you. Yeah. Honestly, read Acts chapter 2 and tell me your family wouldn't try to rescue. If, I'm talking about people that have family that are not born again. Maybe you've got family who already think that. You've gone round the bend, you're over the edge, you're too far. Because the Bible says that when you're in the light and others are in the darkness, they don't understand what's going on. And Peter said, when he wrote his letter to the church, that, that they malign you because you don't run in the same excess as, as them. You don't do the same things that you used to do, and so they get mad at you. You know, I grew up um, in a great youth group, and we had a youth group that was on fire for Jesus, really excited. And, and I remember there were a couple of them that were kind of straddling the line, trying to live in two worlds, trying to live the popular life and trying to live a life following Jesus. And it was a terrible, terribly hard thing to do. And the one thing you noticed about it was that there were kids in high school, and we hate to admit that there are kids in high school getting just out of this world drunk and high on drugs and all this stuff. But there were kids that would never give their alcohol to somebody for free. They would never give their drugs away for free. And that their Christian comes to their party their whole mission that whole night is to see if they can get this person wasted. I mean, they would never give it up for free, but now, why? Because there was something about that person being different that made them uncomfortable. That, that light, little bit of light, even though it was a compromised light, it was enough light that it was making the darkness in them visible and they didn't like it. So the best thing I can do is I don't want to be like you, but I'm going to try my best to make you like me. Can you imagine how weird the church looked to everybody else? But they didn't care. See, their awareness was so fixed on Jesus. They were so aware of the presence of God. I keep using that word aware because that's, that's the reality of what was happening around them. Now you can say, I wish that would happen here, but there's no reason that you can't be filled up with the same spirit they were filled up with. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 4, and we'll read that in a few weeks, in Acts chapter 4, it tells us that this same group of people had to get filled up again. And right after that, lest you think it's a coincidence, right after that, it says once again, nobody considered anything was his own, but they shared with everyone and they were sharing all their possessions and they're giving things away. It seems like a pattern in this church that when they got so full of the Spirit and so excited about Jesus, other things didn't matter. And they began to take care of each other in a way that human beings would just say was, was impossible. There was no six-week course on denying yourself. There was simply a reaction to Jesus that said, of course I deny myself because I want what he has. It was a beautiful thing. And I want you to notice something. Here's a phrase I want it to stick with us. It says in verse 46, day by day, 
continuing, first of all, with one mind. Isn't that awesome? Once again, that sounds cult-like to everybody else. One mind. You've been brainwashed. You've been programmed. It doesn't mean that they all thought the same thoughts. It means that they were, one mind in, in scriptural terms means we, we are heading in the same direction. We've got the same purpose. You know, God puts unique gifts in the body, right? You've got to think totally different than somebody else. Somebody's got a different way of looking at it, a creative way of approaching the issue. It doesn't mean you have to think exactly the same as everybody else, but you are heading in the same direction. You're submitted to the same God. You're, you're focused on the same goals. And with one mind, they were together and they were doing this. How wonderful it was. But that's not the phrase I want to stick with you. Watch this. It says, one mind continuing in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. The sincerity of heart just simply means, another way to translate it would be simplicity of heart, means that this wasn't an act they were putting on. You guys know what it's like when you come to a church where people love each other and you don't feel the same way. Now, maybe some of you don't know this because you've always been the loving one. But have you ever been in a situation where you knew this was the Christian thing to do, so you acted like you were the Christian? You acted like you liked the people that you saw, but you really didn't. We say, greet somebody around you. Tell them you're glad they're here. And you put on your best smile so that you can tell them you're glad they're here, but you really, you really not. <laughs> At best, you're indifferent. At worst, you were kind of hoping they wouldn't sit near you. And I'm not saying that happens every time. But I wonder, I wonder how this would look if this had been forced on them, if this had just, if they just forced it and said, this is what we do. If you don't do it this way, we're kicking you out. There might have been people doing the right thing, but they would have, might have had the right smiles on their faces. They might have acted the right way, but they wouldn't be feeling it. What you see is sincerity of heart. They wanted to do this. Now, here is a secret. Here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing. It says... They were doing it with gladness. Apparently, these people are happy. Now, that tilts our brain because we just heard them give their stuff away. And we live in North America. And the natural idea is, if you really want to be glad, if you really want to be happy, you've got to get more stuff. <laughs> stuff is the secret. In fact, sometimes we... we we, like I said before, remember Jesus, when he told us about the kingdom, he, he didn't just say, Here are, here's what the world wants. It's also what we want. I'm just going to show you a different way to get it. Instead, he says, this is what the world wants. That's not what we're after. We're after something totally different. So it's kind of, I mean, some people get born again and, and uh, they'll say, all right, praise the Lord. You know, I've been, I've been trying to make it in life and I've been a complete failure, but now I realize I've been doing it all wrong. I'm going to make it to the top, baby, but I'm going to, I just needed Jesus' help this whole time. Whereas Jesus said, you guys are trying to make it to the top. That's what the Gentiles try to do. It's not so with you. That's not the kingdom way. His top is different than the world's top. His top's way better. So much better. Oh, we can, we can put up as many pictures of Jesus looking pathetic and sad as we want around our house. 
Because wasn't he a man of sorrows? But the book of Isaiah says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief in the paragraph which discusses his time on the cross. But the book of Hebrews says he had the oil of gladness more than anybody else. And it was a Canadian who finally painted a picture of Jesus laughing. And it took hundreds of years, thousands of years for somebody to do it right. Because we understand that though Jesus laid down his life, though he said, I don't do anything I want to do, I do what the Father tells me to do, that the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that he was the one with the most gladness. We've got to learn that his way is better than our way. And actually believe it, these people were happy. They were glad. They were genuinely excited to be with one another. Here's the trick. We see later on, I mean, you remember the crowd that was there when they began to preach. When they were speaking in other tongues, it says there were people from Parthia, people from there were Arabs there, there were Greeks there, there were people from all over the Roman Empire. Now, we live in Canada where different races are getting along and, and hanging out together and all of these things. And even then, we see some cultural differences. But imagine you're, you're 2,000 years ago. You mostly hang with your own kind. These people might have all been Jews, but they were very diverse and very different. I think it's safe to say when you're just thrown into a group of 3,000 new people, you might have some people there that rub you the wrong way. That's a possibility, isn't it? I mean, we got a church of, look, look at this room. It's not huge. And even in this size, you're going to find personalities that just don't mix. I'm not talking about anybody in particular, I'm just saying. And yet, they're glad to be with one another. And I remember what, what happened back when I was, once again, when I was a teenager. And, and um, there was a, a summer retreat that really changed all our lives forever. And in 1999, we were all just kind of separate. And some of you heard me tell this before, but I remember going down. We were being served a wonderful meal. I mean, better than most camp meals, I'll tell you that. And we're eating our food, and you could just see, you could just place everybody. You knew where they were from because this table was this kind of people, this table was this kind of people, this table was this kind of people, and nobody ever met. I mean, we met, we played games together because someone forced us to. But I mean, those, th those rural kids were, were doing the thing where they choke themselves to see if they can, like, pop a blood vessel in their eye. We're kind of like, no. And then there were, the, okay, there's the reserve kids over there. They got their own crew. And okay, well, this is some of the musicians are hanging out over here. And then, you know, there's the, okay, there's kind of square pegs that don't fit in any hole over there. And you got all these different people. And it was like we were all friendly and polite. But there was no genuine companionship or love. There were just... We're polite to one another because we're at a church camp. You have to be polite. <laughs> and then something happened. God just, just shook up our world. We got so excited about Jesus. We just got so pumped. 
I'm telling you, there were friends from every one of those tables that became my best friends. And we, I, I remember us saying, and I, I, I imagine now in hindsight it might have sounded insulting when I said this to somebody else, but I remember saying to one of my closest friends, we would never hang out in real life. <laughs> like, what is this? Not real life. I don't know what this is. We wouldn't hang out, would we? We don't have anything in common. Yet we were best friends. And there was such a closeness, and it was because suddenly... It wasn't just what we had in common. It wasn't just our fleshly stuff. It was suddenly there was a genuine, sincere love for each other that came from being full of the Spirit of God. You see it later in Colossians 3. Paul says, now we are different. He says, I want you to put off the old self. I want you to put on the new self. He says, the new self is being renewed according to the image of the one who created us. It's a renewal in which there is no difference, no distinction between Jews, between Greeks, between barbarians, Scythians, slave, and free. I know we've talked about this, but let's just think about that for a minute. For those of you who haven't heard us talk about this, 2,000 years ago, Jews and Greeks, already there's a struggle. Let's not even bring up the fact that it was those stinking Greeks. <laughs> Sorry. It was the Seleucids. Some people say Seleucids. I was corrected recently that it's Seleucids. Came in. The descendants of Alexander the Great came in, and a man named Antiochus Epiphanes took over Judea. Sacrificed a pig in their high temple. Just trampled on their beliefs. Did all these things. And so, already a little uncomfortable with Greek people. Okay, we're getting along. Don't like you still. But not only that, but the Greeks were, were the source of all the intellect. I mean, these were the academics of the world. Even the Romans, if they wanted their kids to get the high education, they sent them off to Athens, get educated there. I mean, the Greeks were the intellectual snobs. The Jews were the religious snobs. Stick them together. Have fun. Play, kids. <laughs> but those were probably two of the closest groups in that whole set of scripture. Because he goes on to say, there's no difference between you, the Jew, and you, the Greek, or you, the barbarian. See, now we're bringing barbarians in this. And that's, nobody's, nobody's feels good about the barbarians coming to church. Let's do missions to, bar, to the places where they are. Let's, let's take a mission trip where they are. We will take some pictures for Facebook and we'll get our butts out of there as fast as we can. They're weird. They eat weird. They're messy. They're stinky. And then he says, Scythians. And I've got one of my favorite historical books. It's a book by Herodotus who laid out. I mean, this was like 400 years before this happened. So maybe the Scythians have evolved a little bit. But these are the people that live, in, I mean, kind of where Russia is now, a little bit of the Asian steppes. These guys are, are fabulous horsemen. Their kids learn to ride a horse before they can learn to walk. But they are, like, if these, if, if they're barbarians in the world, the Scythians are super barbarians. They're just gross. 
You read the history of, of, of the kind of things they did and, and, you know, the mugs that they would use. I mean, if you were a king with a lot of power, your mug was used, was created from the skull of your enemies, of course. And if you had a lot of money, you'd, you'd put some gemstones and shiny things in the skull. But, hey, this is, this is my special mug. You might have world's greatest dad. They have the skull of another dad. You know, this is my... They were, I mean, they, the things they did, the things they ate, the way they ate it. And Paul comes along and says, in Christ, there's no difference between you guys. But Christ is all and Christ is in all. And we can, in theory, that sounds nice. Okay, there's no difference. But in practice, what that means is you got to go to these people's house and eat. In practice, you eat together, you live together, you pray together, you go to church together. In practice, you're not just saying we're the same. In practice, you're coming together. Then he says, there's no difference between a slave and a free man, which at the time shook up the class system because the Roman Empire was built on the backs of a slave class. And every time they'd expand to a new territory, they'd send new slaves home. That's how they were able to fund the expeditions. The only way it worked was if there was a whole class, a whole cast of people that were slaves. And you were born into it. Many, I mean, if you weren't sent over from another land, you were, you were born into it. And, and that was just your lot in life. And these guys start getting saved. And you have those awkward moments where somebody you totally mistreated before you became a believer and you might have treated terribly, all of a sudden is in the same church service as you. And some of the teachings that the church taught were you don't get to give the nice-looking people, the nice-dressed people, the, the fanciest chairs in church. You, you, you let the poor guy sit up front, the smelly guy. The guy hasn't had a bath for three months. That's the guy that gets to sit up front with the nice, nice other dignified people. All of a sudden... These people are together saying there's no difference between you and I. But it, if you read it, if all of that was forced on them, there wouldn't have been the sincerity of heart. They just would have at best played along. They would have at best said, we have to act like we like this because the apostles are watching. But the scripture tells us they were glad. They're probably happier than they've ever been. They enjoy each other. They're sincere. We talked about this a while ago. I remember we talked about not faking it in church and how some people say, I just, you know, I just feel like, I just, I just, I want to stop doing all this because I feel that church is fake. I feel like I'm always got a fake smile, a fake handshake. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to smile anymore. I'm not going to shake people's hands because you know what? I'm tired of being fake. That's one solution. It's the wrong solution. You don't say, you don't say, I mean, I don't really love my kids. Can't stand them. I pretend I love them. Once their birthday, I act like I'm happy that they're around one more trip around the sun. But I'm not really happy. I don't like them. I can't stand them. So my solution is to openly show my disgust for them. That's the wrong solution. You know the right solution? Change your heart. 
So if you feel like you're fake and you, you're reading this group of people and you're seeing how genuinely happy they are to be together and how they, they care for one another more than they care for themselves and you're saying, that's not me and if I try that, I'd be faking it. Here's what you do. You ask the Lord to give you the real love so that you're not faking it. You don't just stop and give up. You say, Lord, I need this. Every time they were filled with the Spirit of God, this is what happened. And this is not a picture of a church that's long since passed away. This may look a little different in our culture. It might look different. But there's going to be some foundational similarities. And it's because we're so aware of God and His greatness and His, His part in our, our lives He's the thing we value the most. And it's all throughout the New Testament that we cannot say we love God if we don't love the people next to us. The Bible says in 1 John, if a man says he knows God and he hates his brother, that man is a liar. Love, the real love, the sacrificial lay your life down kind of love, the love of God that love is the only true litmus test for a believer. You know, Jesus didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples because you did miracles. Because the Bible says there'll be even lying signs and wonders someday. Miracles were a part of being a disciple, absolutely. But that wasn't the one defining characteristic. He doesn't say, they'll know you're my disciples because you can preach a good sermon. Because the scripture says, there'll be those that have eloquent words and good messages, but it's not from me. He doesn't say, They'll know you're my disciples because, well, you went to the right meetings and you got educated at the right schools. He says, they'll know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. It's interesting that he didn't say, your love for me. Because that's implied. Because in our love for one another, we demonstrate our love for God. Because we're the body of Christ. There's a wonderful scripture in Ephesians. We bring out every wedding, which says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It goes on to say that when you love your wife, you're loving yourself. And it says, No one hates his own flesh. If you were to hate your wife, it's hating yourself. If you're to hurt your wife, it's hurting yourself. He says, you don't hate your own flesh. You nourish it. You take care of it. In the same way, do this, husbands love your wives. And he says, this is a picture of Christ's love for the church. What's wonderful about that is that that's also a picture of the church's love for one another. That we can't claim we love God if we don't love his body. We hear that so many times. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but you'll forgive me if I repeat it. It's become so popular and cool for us to go around and write a book and say, I can't stand church people, but I love Jesus. <laughs> oh, we think we're cool saying that. I like Jesus, I just don't like the church, man. And you know what? When we do that, we distance ourselves from them. So everything they do that's stupid and wrong, it's not our fault. I don't even like these guys. I just like Jesus. I mean, there are books. I worked in a Christian bookstore when I was younger. There are books that have that as the title. 
Now, maybe they come around in the end. I didn't read it. They might come around and say, just kidding, JK, LOL. You know, I, 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 I was actually meaning to say, or maybe that was just a title to catch you, and then in the book they tell you, we should love one another. That may be the case. So please don't go out and stone anybody. But it's become the cool thing to say because in that, we don't have to take responsibility for the church's mistakes. But the truth is, if we claim to love Jesus, how can we say we love Jesus and not have the same love for one another? For we are members one of another, the scripture says. And I said this before, but the church is also referred to as the bride of Christ. No matter what issues my wife and I may be having, it's not okay for you to come up to me and tell me how much you can't stand my wife. You just say, I mean, if you're constructively saying, you and your wife, I have a suggestion for you. I mean, that probably won't go over well, but I mean, let's ballpark, that might be okay. But if you come up to me and say, your wife is just terrible. Well, now, nobody would ever say that because it's Tia and she's awesome and she's <laughs> lovely. But if you did and you came up and you said, she's just a terrible person, she stinks, she's terrible, she just, I, I can't stand her, I just don't like the sight of her, you're not going to find a sympathetic, sympathetic ear with me. That's my wife. So why do we think it's cool to talk about Jesus' bride in such derogatory terms? They're not perfect. Nobody is. How do you expect a group of people thrown together in a building who come from different backgrounds and cultures and styles and classes and then just say love one another? How do you expect that ever to be perfect? But if we love Jesus, there is a love for one another that develops. And I'm telling you right now, in your love for him, as you grow closer to him, there is a natural reaction where you grow closer to one another. Here's the thing. These things that were happening, the, the closeness, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, was it intentional? Absolutely it was. But it was also a reaction to what God was doing. And I guarantee this. If we would let God fill us and we would devote ourselves to him first, you'd find yourself drifting in this direction. The more we devote ourselves to him, the more we tend to be devoted to one another. The less you care about what's yours and what's not yours, and the more you care about his kingdom. This is the reality of the early church, and I believe it could be the reality for us. If you don't feel that love, I've been there. If you look around and say there are a bunch of people I just don't like, I've been there. But I'm telling you, if you will let God work in your heart, and you let him fill you, and you become more focused on him than on yourself, you'll find that those same people become so closely knit that you can't, dis you can't figure out where you end and, and, and the church begins, that we're one. We're walking together. We're together. Not just together as in we gathered in the same place. We see, we, we compromise and, and call unity a lack of strife. How the churches in your town? Are they in unity? Well, nobody's fighting. I mean, outright fighting. Nobody's denouncing another church from public. I think we're in unity. And I don't walk in. I don't walk in a superstore and go, "Look at all these people. There's no fights. What unity?" And walk through the aisles, going, "We're together again, just praising the Lord." 
Oh, my brother, my sister, isn't it wonderful that we're in such perfect unity? We're not. We're in the same room and we're not fighting. That doesn't make us in unity. Do you ever get a box, a, a, some sort of toy that says some assembly required? Just because there's a bunch of parts in a box doesn't mean they're assembly. And the Bible calls the church an assembly. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Staying in the same room and listening to a sermon and just not outright slugging one another doesn't mean we're in unity. just means we're not fighting. But unity has the effect of heading in the same direction with the same mind, with different gifts, different creative, creative ways to hit it, different approaches, different and unique personalities, but we're all heading in the same direction. See, it doesn't mean that we need to be the same person. If my hand tried to act like my foot, I'd be a failure. My hand and my feet have distinct roles. But you see one of those runners, you see those skiers, cross-country skiing in the Olympics. Well, nobody actually watches that, but if you did. <laughs> sorry, maybe somebody does. Okay. <laughs> We watch the replays when somebody loses a ski and a Canadian coach gives it back. Then we'll watch it. Or maybe, maybe the event where they actually get to fire a gun and ski at the same time. That's kind of cool too. But you see them skiing and their feet and their hands are doing two very different things. And yet both their feet and their hands and their lungs, their eyes, their shoulders, every part of them is moving them towards that line. They're doing different things. They're not trying to be the same, but they're in unity. And what brought about that unity? Well, it's all, they're all getting the orders from the top, right? They're all getting orders from the head, from the brain. The Bible says we are parts of the body of Christ, but Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. If we're submitted to him, if we're focused on him, if we're in unity with him, we'll naturally be in unity with one another. That's the natural thing that happens. But the scripture says, take care when you bite and devour one another that you don't end up eating each other up. He says, how silly is it for the hand to say to this part, I don't have need of you. The eye to say to the, to the, to the mouth, the ears, I have no need of you. How silly is that? The scripture tells us that the more we grow into Christ, the less we can say, I don't need you. And the more we develop not only a need for him, but a need for one another. Now, I'm going to tell you honestly as we close this up, I have an earnest desire to see our hearts closer to Jesus every day. I have a desire for us to grow into the kind of people that can be a reflection of Christ on this earth. Some of you already are just doing a wonderful job, but I know we're all still growing. I think that if we would genuinely look at our hearts, we'd notice the fruit either of a heart that's faking it or a heart that's sincere. If you find every time you come to a service, you're pretending to like people you don't really like. If you find that you go... You say, oh, fine, I guess we'll go to that event. I guess we'll eat with these people, but I don't really want to. Maybe you're busy. Maybe you're tired. But if you find that's naturally what's happening, don't just adjust your behavior. Find out what's at the root of this. 
Because if you're really, really, really full of his spirit, if there's a genuinely, genuine love and affection for Christ, there's going to be the love and affection for one another. If that's not there, don't feel condemned. Because that doesn't do you any good. Don't go home and beat yourself up and say, I'm not a real Christian. Just go back and say, Lord, I want everything you have. I want all the love you have. I want to be full of your spirit, so full of your love and full of your spirit that I can't help but, but overflow on everyone else. The Bible says if you have need of it, Jesus said, ask and you will receive. I don't want you to go one more day faking love for the church. I don't want you to go one more day pretending you care. I don't want you to go one more day think, you know, acting like you're giving and yet at, at the same time saying, I secretly hope nobody needs this. I want you to be sincere. I want you to really be glad. This is going to be so different from the way the world thinks. It will it'll mess with your view of how you've always been raised to think that true happiness, true gladness, does not come from keeping it all, but from giving it. But this is the way Jesus taught us to live. And he said, if you give, you'll receive. Give and it will be given unto you. Press down, shaken together. Will people pour it into your lap? I'm thankful for that. I'm excited about that. I want you to be excited about what God's doing. I want you to expect that if that happens... I want you to expect that, that, that when you grow in Christ and as we grow together, as we get more full of him, we're going to get closer to one another. And I want you to be so determined that you're not going to let stupid little things get between you and other people. That you're not going to let petty little fights or disagreements or things that you think they should do different. That you really are devoted to the love of God. Because that's the way the church is meant to look. It's an exciting church. It's an exciting way to live. It's an exciting and, and, and really the only way the church is meant to function. So let's do it. Let's get excited about it. Let's let God fill us. Amen. Amen. Can we stand up? Thank you, Jesus. Can I be honest and just tell you that I don't always know what this looks like? And, and I think if, I were to, if we were to try to figure it out and just say, well, let's make it work as best we can understand it. We'd probably mess it up badly. But if we will keep our hearts honest before God and sincere before him and let him do in us what we couldn't do in ourselves, the less you beat yourself up about who you're not and just begin to let him change you. So scripture says that Christ would be formed in you, that he would be formed in you, that his anointing would be formed in you, that, that everything he is would be formed in who you are, that your life would become hidden in him. But some of this stuff's gonna come naturally. Some of it you're gonna have to work at. But let's picture this as not just the goal because that's not the end of the story. That was the beginning of the church. I mean, we're not just aiming for the beginning. We're not just saying, let's get as good as they were in the start. No. We want everything that God wants us to be. And it might be that we go the next level than they went. Scripture talks about in the last days, the former rain and the latter rain coming together. Talks about there being greater darkness, but being greater glory. Yeah. Greater sin, but greater grace. I believe that. Yeah. 
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we, uh, we're very thankful that you've given us a pattern to follow. We're thankful that we're not just left to guess at what, what everything should look like, or guess what church should be like, but instead you've laid out something for us, and yet we understand there's more that we don't even see, there's more that we don't understand yet, there's more that has yet to be revealed to us. But the one thing we want is to be full of you. One thing we want is your love in us. God, I'm asking you right now that for every person that we've been trying our best to love and have had a hard time doing it, that you'd give us a genuine, sincere love, a sincere love, so that our time together won't be fake but real, so that our love won't be put on but genuine, so that there will be a genuine affection for you and for one another. I'm asking, Lord, that you would turn our world upside down as you see fit, that your kingdom would be the most important thing to us, that your purpose, your cause, your life would be the thing that we set our eyes on, that we would set our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We would understand that we can't do this on our own. When I read these verses, I, I can't do that. I don't know how, but you do. So, Lord, we're asking that you would lead us and guide us, that we would be the church you've, de- you've called us to be, that we, you would call us out of our own ways, that we would be saved from a twisted generation. We would be saved from a world that's, 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 that's totally lost the plot a culture that's in darkness, that you would rescue us from that culture in order to send us back to love those that the world can't love, to bring hope where there is no hope, to bring faith where there is despair. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, love you guys. I know this is going to be a great uh, week for us and I'm excited about what God's doing in the church what God's doing in your hearts. I encourage you to take a moment, say hello to the people around you. Uh, Don't bolt for the door so fast that nobody can catch you. (laughs) Give them a minute. All right, God bless you.